Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Worse Than the French Revolution episode. With me is Elliot Pepper to talk about Breach, the third and final book in his Analog Trilogy. Elliot was on the show last year to talk about the first two books, Bandwidth and Borderless. The series is set in the near future and follows the growth of a company called Commonwealth. The company controls the world's digital feed, which streams directly into everyone's heads. And that's a little like what I want to do today, stream into Elliot's head and find out what he's thinking. Hi, Elliot. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be back. Let's start by talking about geography. I'm in New York City, and you are (laughs) where exactly? So I'm in a little town um, on the coast of northern Spain. My wife and I are walking El Camino, the ancient pilgrimage route here. So we started in a tiny little town called Irún on the border of France and Spain, and we're walking all the way to Santiago de Compostela, which is about just under 900 kilometers and takes five weeks or so. So as you can hear, the uh, seagulls in the background, um, they'll, they'll be joining us for this episode. And how's the trek been going? The trek has been wonderful. It was actually, I was joking with my wife the other day because, you know, when we told our friends that, that we wanted to do this, many of them responded that we were totally crazy. <laughs> like, you're going to walk 900 kilometers? I, mean, I thought running a marathon was bad, right? And so it's been really interesting for me as, as a writer because I've, I've actually found that walking a 900-kilometer pilgrimage route and writing novels have, have quite a bit in common. <laughs> they're, they're both these, these fun activities that seem so ambitious from the outside and even seem so ambitious when you're embarking on them that, that the only way you, you get to the end is by writing that next sentence or just taking that next step. And there's this funny um, sort of flip in, in perspective uh, once you're once you're doing it, uh, because, you know, midway through, suddenly it started to seem not crazy at all. It was just, we got up in the morning, we, we took a long walk through the countryside, and then we slept really, really well. And that, that sort of feels like writing a novel. At a certain point, um, when you're in the creative process, you're just, you're working through the next scene, you're, you're, you're there with the characters in the moment, and it, it, doesn't, it no longer feels like the Manhattan Project sort of scale of of, uh, of ambition. It just feels like like you just need one more sentence. You just need one more step. Well, I think the real question on my mind is, are your feet sore? <laughs> Definitely. It, it's, uh, I, I'd say that it's uh, a kind of management. You have, to, you have to manage your own psychology and you have to really pay attention and listen to your body. So I've got some tendonitis in, uh, along one of my legs and I'm, I'm taking good care of it and being really careful and making sure to rest it and ice it and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you started the trip shortly after Breach came out in May. So is this your way of celebrating its publication and the, and the completion of your trilogy? Yeah, we actually started the walk 
I think three days after Breach came out. So it was, I think, a wonderful bookend to the trilogy to really have the opportunity to take a step back and just search for new perspectives and go on a journey of my own. And it was also an experiment to see if I could both do a pilgrimage through remote areas of northern Spain and somehow try to manage a book launch at the same time. <laughs> and how's that been going? I mean, you're obviously able to do this interview, I mean, with the seagulls in the background. From my perspective, it's been going well. Hopefully your listeners will accommodate the seagulls and um, <laughs> and, and will make it work. But no, it, it's been lovely. It, it's actually been a really wonderful experience, in part because I know you speak to many, many authors. And I think that something that I've struggled with, and I've also heard you know, many friends who are writers struggle with is, is actually right after you have a book come out, you have all of this anxiety, all of this excitement. It's like positive and negative, right? You've been working on a project for years. You've poured so much of your heart and soul into it. You've had to overcome so many sort of crises as you're working on the project along the way. You really want people to enjoy it. You want people to like it. And so you have this huge emotional buildup to when a book comes out, right? Um, you, you, you want people to connect with it. You want it to do well. And, you know, you're working with uh, your whole team, your agent, your publisher, all of this kind of stuff to, to help share it with the world. And then once it comes out, there's almost inevitably this sort of emotional low that comes right afterwards, just like a roller coaster or maybe like New Year's Eve, right? Everybody gets you know, the classic, everyone's so excited for New Year's Eve and you go out and almost no matter where you go, the better party was somewhere else, right? <laughs> and I think that there's something similar when you have a, a book or any large project that finally comes to completion. There's this natural sort of emotional buildup and then emotional release and then a, a low point afterwards. And so for me, it's actually been a really wonderful experience to sort of check out and, and go on this long walk right after the book came out because it was a reset. It was a real emotional reset that allowed me to reconnect with why I write books in the first place and, and, how, and how to be excited about them for the right reason. It's interesting, too, that you've chosen to go on this journey that disconnects you a little bit from, I imagine, the internet and the world at large because your books are very much about being connected and what that means. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's one place in the book that I guess really uh, applies there, which is the Analog Social Club, which shows up in all three books. And it's what the series is named for. You know, it's called the Analog Series. And so in the books, it's a social club where in this hyper-connected world, when you step through the door into this club, it's totally off-grid. So your connection to this ubiquitous digital feed just cuts out instantly it disappears and for the characters in the book it's super disorienting because if you're used to being connected all the time and connected in a thousand more ways and to a thousand x more depth than we are with our phones to the internet it is this very shocking experience to suddenly have that all ripped away from you and just be thrown into physical reality that isn't mediated by anything digital and, you know, that, that was a, that experience of negative space of the fact that you have this actual place in the world that takes away many of the future, the elements that 
that make this future feel like a future in the analog books. That social club analog gave you this negative space where you could really see how different their future is from our present. And so that's been a fun metaphorical experience for me here uh, walking uh, the Camino where, yeah, we're, you know, we're walking down dirt paths through countryside past buildings that were built in, you know, 500 AD. So yeah, it's a, it's a very on, on the nose perhaps, but it's, it's a very fun experience to have now that these analog novels are out in the world. And there's a parallel place that's a bit similar to analog because it's also off the grid, which is where Breach opens. But maybe I'll just take a step back first and just give a quick overview of the two first books in the analog series, Bandwidth and Borderless. They introduced us to Commonwealth which you've described as the combination of all of today's huge technology and internet corporations times a thousand. And in bandwidth, a group of hackers manipulate the feeds of world leaders to influence their thinking about various social issues, especially climate change. And then in borderless, Commonwealth actually becomes its own nation, its own sovereign nation, And that brings us to Breach. Of course, there's a lot of other stuff that happens, so that's my kind of quick thumbnail. But when Breach opens, we're about as far from the Commonwealth boardroom as possible. We're we're in a place similar to analog in that it's cut off from Commonwealth and cut off from the feed. We're in a fight club, actually, in the Philippines with Emily Kim, and she's someone who played an important role in the earlier books, and she moves to center stage as the main character in Breach. Why don't you tell us about Emily? Who is she? Why is she in the Fight Club? Why is she covering herself with, I think it's some kind of glittery body paint? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so, so yeah, Emily plays a really critical role um, early in the books. And, you know, she's this... Uh, really, really strong person. Um, you know, she, she had a really tough childhood. And as she grew up, she was one of those people who would look around her and always sort of see how systems work. So for example, I went to a very large public high school and there, was not, there wasn't much support for, for students. We had one, uh, two counselors, I think, for a class of almost a thousand so almost four thousand total when i was there and there were some kids who just have tried to do exactly what the teachers and administrators said that you should do and then there were other kids who read between the lines and saw how the bureaucracy functioned and they were the ones who were able to get into the classes they wanted to get into or to you know make the schedule they wanted to make or to get away with whatever they wanted to get away with and Emily is one of those kinds of people so she has this ability that you know was honed when she was really really young uh, as a survival skill to see how things fit together to see how human systems function and where the cogs are where the weak points are and so as she was growing up, she used that skill to basically build a haven for other kids like her who were in these really, really tough circumstances, who had no one to rely on, and created this sort of found family. And so she has this really deep set moral compass, but it's a moral compass that doesn't align with 
uh, sort of so many social norms. So she has her own version of what justice means. And she is very, very aware of how that version doesn't line up with, you know, how the criminal justice system works and how people can sort of fall through the cracks in all of these different ways. And so um, using that intuition, using that, um, that eye for sort of system thinking, she becomes essentially the world's premier social hacker. So rather than just being someone who is, you know, exploiting computer systems, um, she's someone who, yes, computer systems are part of it, but she actually looks for how to, how to take advantage or how to, how to flip, how to hack human systems. So, you know, that turns into a lot of the drama in, in book one. But another critical thing that happens uh, in book one that, that then plays out in book three is that she breaks her own moral code. So, she, you know, she, in order to try to fight for the ideals she stands for, winds up betraying her closest friends. And that breaks her. Um, it breaks her because they find out. And these are the people that she has spent her life trying to serve and who, who she deeply loves. And so she locks herself in this moral quandary. And she is so strong-willed that she can't handle it. So she runs away. And at the beginning of book three, we find her in this fight club where she is basically trying to wash out her shame through violence. And, and that's where the book starts. She's basically, it's almost like a form of self-abuse. She's in these fight to the deaths in this fight club. And it's a place like Analog, like the social club, where there is no feed. And that brings all kinds of criminal activity. And one night, it also brings the uber-capitalist Lowell Harding. He comes to the fight club where he can have a private conversation. No one can overhear him. And he brings with him some of his super rich and powerful associates from around the world. And I thought, since it's at the very beginning of the book and kind of sets things up, maybe you could talk about why he brought them there and what he's so upset about. He's upset about something. Sure. Um, so Lowell is a really devious guy. <laughs> and um, and he, he's also a systems thinker in his own way. One of the things he's been paying a lot of attention to is Commonwealth, is this company that supports the seed. And Commonwealth has become such a utility. It has become such a part of, of life in this future in a similar way that plumbing or electricity or you know running water are completely ubiquitous in our lives today, even more so than the internet. And it's become so fundamental to how the economy works, to how vehicles do wayfinding, to, to how you do it, you know, communicate. And because it's this digital, ubiquitous this digital feed, that infrastructure doesn't respect uh, national borders. And in the previous book and borderless, Commonwealth goes sovereign. So uh, you could imagine that as Google and all the other tech companies coming together and then deciding that basically they want to write their own constitution and say that, you know, you can be a citizen of Google and your sort of nationality and your citizenship doesn't really matter, right? That, and you can sort of see this already happening in the world today, that um, there are actually countries that are sending diplomats to Silicon Valley. And um, many of these major tech companies are now involved in major geopolitical debates that go far beyond just sort of internet standards. So, you know, there are sort of inklings of this in, in the headlines, but in this book, it is really 
played out to an enormous extent. And because Commonwealth has now declared its own sovereignty, its rules really, really matter. So in bandwidth, it changes its terms of service. You know, those things that, that you never read, that you, <laughs> that you agree to when you start to use Gmail or when you start to use any other piece of software. Well, because Commonwealth has so much sway, it has so much power, it starts putting real um, laws basically into its terms of service. So in the first book, it actually creates a global carbon tax and adds that to its terms of service that forces countries and people to reduce their CO2 emissions because of the risk of climate change, right? So Lowell is seeing this and, and he's, he's also seeing how Commonwealth didn't stop with a carbon tax. That's just the beginning, right? They're now, they've transformed from this sort of tech platform to almost a proto-global government in a way. And they are now considering, there is, there's a lot of public controversy around this, but they're considering instituting a wealth tax that would basically, you know, tax people who have a lot of money in order to use that to fund more infrastructure that serves everyone else. And Lowell made billions in the previous books, and he is assembling a group of uh, billionaires who who don't want that to happen because they're the ones whose money would be taken by such a scheme. And so he is assembling them in this place where, where they can't be overheard, where they're off the feed to try to figure out how they might divert Commonwealth's plans. Tell me a little more about this idea, which seems counterintuitive just based on the behavior of the companies that are most similar to Commonwealth today, you know, the Facebooks and Googles. They seem a little more like Lowell Harding or aligned with Lowell Harding's view of the world. They want to maximize their profits at all costs, or at least that's how it seems. And they've gotten into a lot of trouble for it, you know, accusations of letting a foreign government steal an election, for instance, or all the problems or all the concerns of genocide of the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, which Facebook has come under serious criticism for. And yet Commonwealth is representing a very different example. They're genuinely interested, it seems like, in doing good. I wondered if you could just talk about that idea. Sure. So I think you'll you'll find some interesting things out there. So you mentioned Facebook, right? So Facebook rightfully gets pressure because of letting people use its platform essentially for hate speech, right? And for trying to distribute that hate speech in various creative ways that take advantage of how Facebook is designed. And that's horrible, right? And a lot of people say that's horrible. Now, Facebook also gets flack anytime it tries to set rules and enforce them for what is or isn't allowed on the platform because that violates, in the U.S. anyway, it, it, you know, people claim that it violates freedom of speech, right? And Facebook's response to that is, well, this is, our, this is a private space. We own, this isn't a public square. This is our company's product. So, you know, it's not freedom of speech. But everybody else says, well, hey, you have so many users. It, it now is an essentially a public square. So you should respect freedom of speech. And so Facebook gets pressured in both ways, both to that it should be setting policy more aggressively and that it shouldn't be setting policy. So Facebook's a weird one. There are also some other interesting examples that I think pertain here 
Um, one recent one, I don't know if you saw this, but, uh, you know, Salesforce, they recently announced that they aren't going to allow any retailers that sell automatic weapons to use Salesforce software. And Salesforce currently has some of the largest retailers of guns as customers. And uh, there are actually a number of other good examples that are very, very recent that have only happened in the past six months or so of large American companies that are making internal corporate policies that actually hurt their bottom line. So in the short run, right, hurt their bottom line in the short run that are political decisions. They are trying to um, make policies uh, basically because of what employees see as government failure. Right. So if the government isn't willing to ban automatic weapons, we aren't going to let anyone who sells them use our stuff. Right. And that has happened because employees of those companies have started becoming far more activists than they've ever been before. And I think that leadership at those companies is starting to pay attention, basically, because employees are doing walkouts, they're doing protests. And if you're in one of these companies where you're always trying to fight to get the best engineers, you don't want to be the company people hate. But, you know, to your point, I think that that is just uh, a tiny step. These little examples are still very, very little. And I think that part of what happens in these books is that Commonwealth, it, you know, has gone far beyond where these companies are today. And to stop thinking about quarterly profits, and to start thinking about what the actual responsibilities are that come along with their massive scale. The idea of something being of massive scale is obviously key to this because that allows Commonwealth to maybe go off in a new direction. They don't have to worry about losing to a competitor if they decide to do something that may be less popular with the Lowell Hardings of the world. I wonder what you make of the current recent news in the last few weeks about antitrust investigations and the House Judiciary Committee said it's going to start a bipartisan probe of anti-competitive practices in the digital industry. Do you think there might be an effort underway to prevent a Commonwealth-like corporation from forming? I mean, maybe people in Washington have been reading your books. I think that there is, I mean, there are many people. I mean, think Tim Wu. If you're interested in this, if listeners are interested in this, look up Tim Wu. He's written some really, really thoughtful pieces on tech antitrust, basically. Um, so I, I think he's a great person to start with. And yes, um, there are a lot of smart people who, who want to get that process started, right? Who look at the, the big tech companies. So Amazon, Facebook, Google, um, you know, Apple, and they're starting to say, hey, look, you know, th these companies are, they they're accruing too much power and it's time for the government to step in and start setting some rules. And I think that there are sort of a few angles that are interesting there for folks to think about. And, and that is that, you know, many of these companies have grown very, very quickly, right? So they've grown so quickly that I don't think that their leadership has yet come to terms with their own scale. So, you know, for a very good reason, uh, tech startups want to be scrappy. 
right? I mean, like if you have no resources and you're trying to start something new for the very first time, you just have to figure out a way to do it. And that's why, you know, Facebook's early sort of slogan was move fast and break things because when you're young and you're trying to actually make something new and nobody knows, nobody knows what will work and what won't you experiment. And like, that's, that's how they got to where they are. The problem is that that philosophy doesn't work because they've been a victim of their own success. So once you get to a certain scale, um, you have to start thinking differently. And I think that we're right now witnessing a lot of the results of this awkward growth period and that awkward growth period certainly involves a lot of anti-competitive behavior. Um, I mean, if you look at how Facebook bought WhatsApp and Instagram, I think they're probably the most egregious. If you, if you want to sort of like look across the board, they've really been trying to corner the social networking part of the internet. And, you know, I think that there's a very good argument to be made that they shouldn't have been allowed to acquire Instagram. And I think that people will now take another look at that. And, you know, I, I would guess that if this, this sort of movement for tech antitrust gets momentum, you know, reversing that acquisition might be one of the, the things that people have very high on the docket. But I mean, you know, taking a step back, I think that it's a very important time to be looking at how the internet is changing the structure and flow of power. It's changing it in ways that don't just challenge competition on the internet because you have uh, certain dynamics. For example, with machine learning, with, with specialized artificial intelligence, the more data you have, the easier it is to train better algorithms. The better algorithms you have, the easier it is to make better products. The better products you have, the, the easier it is to get better engineers, to get better employees. The better employees you have, the better the service. The better the service, the more customers or users you have, the more users you have, the more data you have, and now you start, you know, rinse, repeat, right? So there's this natural tendency towards uh, centralization within machine learning on the internet. And that's why Google, had, that's something that Google has been doing particularly well, right? So it's very hard to do anything like Google is doing if you're not Google. And so that, that tendency towards monopoly is, is part of this movement in, in how power is changing. And those companies are, you know, they have GDPs that are much larger than many countries and they operate across borders. Um, so, you know, they're in constant negotiations with all of these different legislative bodies and judicial bodies around the world all the time. Since the Treaty of Westphalia, we've, been, we've, we've thought about politics as the province of nation states. Now we are starting to see politics as the province of nation states and of major internet companies. And so it's messy. And um, this new activity in Washington is people with really particular ideas about how to clean up the mess. So that's where we're at right now. And I don't think anybody knows how it's going to play out. Breach delves into the idea of governance and who's running Commonwealth and who will run it for the long term, especially because the old and ailing chairperson who runs it in the three books, Rachel Leibovitz, is is very old and she's very ill. And it made me wonder if, say, Commonwealth comes up with a system that isn't necessarily embracing the people with humanity's interest in mind and is more interested in profit, say, 
or maybe at some point, maybe it's well governed for many decades, but then something changes and it turns into some kind of nefarious dictatorship. It, it makes me think about individual responsibility and what individual users can do to extract the best from our connected world, but also stay healthy and clear thinking and basically independent from groupthink and all the algorithms which may or may not be pushing our thinking in a good direction. It, it depends. It depends on what the motive of the algorithm is. If it's to get more clicks, it could be pushing us in, down a darker hole of pornography or violence or extreme partisan thinking and falsehoods. And you've obviously given this a lot of thought. So what do you think we today, anyway, individual users can do to extract the best from, from our connected world? Okay, so I'm going to answer that question in two parts. So the first part was about governance. You know, when I was writing Breach, I did a lot of reading on systems of governance, meaning how, as people, how do we actually figure out how to share power and responsibility with each other? And I actually did quite a bit of reading on the founding fathers, basically, on the start of the American Republic, because here you had a group of people who organized a revolution, and then they had to figure out what to do next. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and they wound up trying to create a new model for what to do next that later became a model that other countries you know, took pieces of and tried to adapt for themselves in a lot of places around the world. And I think that you know, when you look at today's sort of digital robber barons or, or the, 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 the people who are, have built these new human organizations that have acquired an enormous amount of power that they never had before, right? So if you look at um, the leadership of Facebook or Amazon or Google or these other major companies that, that have created a new base of power in the world, they think a lot about product. They think a lot about the thing that they're making. They think a lot about users, right? Like they think a lot about what the impacts of what they're making are on users, how they can make something that users want to use so that they can remain popular and powerful. Um, they think a lot about PR. And, and many, in many of those spheres, they're very creative, right? I mean, like what Google has made is amazing. Like I am so grateful that I can use Google when I research my books and that I can use Google Maps when I get lost here on the Camino. And so many of these companies bring an enormous amount of creativity and enterprise to um, those questions. But one question that they bring very, very little creativity to is their own governance, their own, the way they structure their own organization to share or not power. All of these companies are set up as normal um, you know, American corporations with a board of directors and with very, very standard sort of roles and responsibilities for the people who get to make decisions. And those responsibilities are set by sort of U.S. corporate law norms, right? And that's about it. Um, the founding fathers thought very differently. So if you look at, at the beginning, you know, during the American Revolution, it would have been very, very easy for George Washington to have said, you know what, like, let's do a monarchy because I have really good ideas and I'm going to implement them. And you know what? It would have been a hell of a lot more efficient, right? I mean, if you look at Singapore today, they're a, an authoritarian government um, that gets a lot of shit done, right? And if you like what they're doing, it's a wonderful system, right? But if you don't like what they're doing, um, you're screwed. 
And that's the problem with any kind of totalitarian regime. And the Founding Fathers knew that that kind of an efficient monarchy was possible and decided not to do it because they wanted the inefficiency of actually sharing power in a democracy. And they created a system that had a lot of checks and balances and was totally imperfect and often worked against itself, but that created this new way of sharing power in society. And I think that that question of governance, the more power you have, the more important that question becomes. Like in breach, if Commonwealth is like Singapore and the CEO holds all the power and the CEO dies, well, even if that initial CEO was benevolent, you know, what if the next one isn't? And if you look at the his, you know, if you look at any historical examples, almost all totalitarian and authoritarian systems fall into disrepair, and that's a very, very kind way to say it, very, very quickly, because the minute you lose whoever was in charge initially in making generally good decisions, you wind up with someone who's totally crazy and just power hungry and turns it into a dystopia, right? And so I think that right now, um, these new power bases, these new organizations that have gained a lot of power in society need to look in the mirror and need to um, think about how they should actually be making decisions so that their organization and what they're hoping to do will last, so that it will actually result in a future that people want to live in um, for the long term, not just for the next quarterly report. Um, And so I think that that's the key question of governance that um, the private sector needs to start asking, asking of itself and that the public sector also needs to keep asking of itself. You know, like the founding fathers were super creative in how to set up this system with all of its flaws. Our current government in the U.S. is totally has none of that creativity. Right. It's just using this system that in many ways is completely outdated and needs to be updated to fit our modern world and hasn't been. Now, the second part of your question was about what should individual users keep in mind in a world, and specifically in a digital world, where there are all of these systems of influence that operate beyond our control, where you, you know, you're online and what you're seeing is determined by an algorithm, you know, in your Facebook feed or even in your email inbox. Or if you're on YouTube, you know, you're in this filter bubble of recommendation engine um, videos that that are getting sort of fed to you and you're choosing between. So what should individual users keep in mind? Well, I think that users, and like this is something that I try to do, really need to channel actually Emily, right? They need to channel that, the skill, and it's a learned skill to be able to look at the world and notice the systems that operate behind it. So to pay attention to um, when you go to the DMV, don't just get frustrated (laughs) by the bureaucracy you have to deal with, but ask, why does this bureaucracy exist in the first place? Why, why do they, why, why was this system created to be maddening? Whose interests does that serve? If I'm on Facebook, why am I being shown the things that I'm being shown? And why is Facebook acting in such a way to make its own internal processes lack transparency, right? Who's benefiting from that? And uh, what does that mean for me? And I think that, you know, the, the first step to any of this stuff individually is always asking questions because the best thing you can do to support the status quo, the best thing you can do 
to support people in power who you disagree with, it's to stop paying attention. And we don't want to let that lesson stop with the internet because it's not just the internet that has all of these systems embedded in it, many of which are broken. It's our criminal justice system. It's our healthcare system. It's, uh, you know, our, our political system. It's our judicial system. And I think that will reveal um, new opportunities for, for action to help build that future that we all do want to live in. It's hard to imagine people taking a proactive attitude towards things like Facebook, or most people, I mean, I think, or I shouldn't even, it's sort of putting down or having a low expectation of people's behavior. But I think in general, when we turn to these things, we forget how big the universe of choices are. So when YouTube is suggesting some videos, it seems to make logical sense. Oh, yeah, that's kind of connected to what I just saw. And we don't realize that there's probably a million other possible things we could be looking at, which might, in fact, challenge our views rather than reinforce them, which seems to be the inclination of the algorithms as they work today. And I think a lot of people don't even realize there is such a thing as an algorithm. Even if you hear the words, you sort of lose perspective. It's so easy to get lost in this. So I just wonder how practical it is for people to, to ask questions about these things when it's just so overwhelming. You know, these systems seem so permanent and so fixed in some ways. Of course, there are advocates who are asking those questions, but the average person just may not, may be too busy to, to even think that way. I think that uh, saying you're too busy is the easiest way to support a broken system. Um, and I don't think that this is at all unique to the Internet. I think that that's just the case for any political issue. People who are in power love apathy because it means that their power won't be disrupted. And I fall into this category all the time. Like, what do I do when there's something I really care about? Like, for example, the refugee crisis. How do I actually take action here? Is signing an online petition enough? Is donating to the ACLU or other relevant nonprofits enough? And it can sometimes be isolating and disempowering to think about that, right? Because how, what, what power do I have as an individual to influence the federal government? It's really easy to, to basically check out, right? And to say, this is beyond my control. And so I, have, I personally struggle with this. And I try to actually take action by finding people who are doing good work, right? And that good work could be national, right? So people who are trying to take cases to the Supreme Court to try to get some of these atrocities undone, or it could be very local. Like my wife and I volunteered with a local nonprofit in the East Bay and hosted a Ugandan uh, refugee in our home for nine months um, last year. And, and that was an incredibly empowering experience because did that fix the refugee crisis? Hell no. But it helped one person who was an example of someone going through a refugee crisis. And so I think that, um, you know, we have to uh, trick ourselves sometimes into uh, knowing that, that these systems are there and they are powerful and they have enormous consequences, but also that they are the product of human endeavor right? No system magically appeared out of nowhere. People built these systems and only people are going to have, 
we're going to need people to build the new systems that replace them. And, you know, that applies to YouTube equally. So, you know, one interesting example of, you know, filter bubbles is that, yes, you can get locked into the recommendations on YouTube, but we used to all live in extraordinarily constrained filter bubbles, which was basically the place into which we were born, right? I mean, before you had uh, wired communication and then wireless communication, um, you basically interacted with the other people in your town or the other people in the city where you were born. That is an incredibly restrictive filter bubble, right? Particularly if you're born into a small town. Um, and one of the really beautiful things about the internet that, that is that, yes, it creates, you know, things like YouTube, which can allow you to get so locked into your interest that you never see anything outside of it, but it also creates the opportunity for you to connect with people far outside what would have been a geographic filter bubble. So I think that there are always these sort of conflicting forces at work. And that's where the interesting things are. Well, as always, Elliot, it is fascinating to talk to you and it's fascinating to read your books. There's a lot of amazing ideas and inspiring choices that you offer just now in our conversation. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's, it's, always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope people enjoy the books. And, uh, and I hope it challenges folks to maybe look at the world a little differently once they get to the end. Thank you for coming back on the pod, and it's been great talking about Breach, and good luck with the rest of your journey. Thank you. Yeah, I hope I don't have too many blisters by the time I get to Santiago. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate coming on the show. It's always a real pleasure talking to you, and, um, and happy reading. I've been chatting with Elliot Pepper about Breach, the third book in his analog trilogy, which came out in May from 47 North. This is New Books and Science Fiction, and if you don't subscribe already, I encourage you to do so and to consider leaving a review of the show in the Apple Store. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I'm online at robwolf.net and on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Thanks for listening and for your support. <laughs>